This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, began the season that we know as Eastertide. Eastertide. Tide, that little word tacked on at the end of Easter, coming from an old Anglo word that means season or time period. Season of Eastertide, do a little history lesson here. It's it's good stuff. It's good stuff, so hang in here with me. Uh, There's a 50-day period that includes Easter and Pentecost Sunday. And Eastertide is that 50-day period. During this season that we call Eastertide, from the resurrection of our Lord all the way up to the birth of the Christian church, you remember that was marked, Acts 2 tells us it was marked by the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on his disciples, 120 of them initially on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. In that season, we actually celebrate seven Easter Sundays. That's been the church's manner in this. So this actually is not the Sunday after Easter. This is the second Sunday of Easter. And accordingly, we say Christ is risen And we say that not only through these seven Sundays, but really for all of us, um, every day is Easter and a day of resurrection. So this is the second Sunday of Easter. We will have a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, and a seventh. And then on the eighth Sunday, uh, we will celebrate Pentecost Sunday. During the first Eastertide, and there was a first Eastertide, The four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recorded six, seven, eight, depending on who you uh, listen to and how you read it, maybe as many as nine occasions where Jesus appeared to his followers after the resurrection. Now, Luke tells us that the period immediately following the resurrection in which Jesus appeared was a 40-day period. So 50 of the days of Easter tide the first 40 of those days were the days of Christ's appearances to his disciples. Now, the Gospels only record a few of those incidents. The six, seven, eight, or nine that we have recorded are are only a few of those that um, most uh, evidently happened because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, reflecting back on that season, said over 500 people now attest to the fact that they saw Christ risen from the dead during that season. As a matter of fact, We always, using Pauline language, when we talk about the gospel in theological terms, a lot of people will say the gospel, the good news, is the love of God, the love of Christ. But using Pauline language, we flesh that out, and we often use the the three words, um, the death, burial, and resurrection, right? You, You hear people talk about the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the good news. Well, actually, Paul did say the good news is the death, burial, and resurrection, but that's 75% of what Paul said was good news, technically. Paul said the good news... The gospel is that Christ died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and he was seen of more than 500 people during a 40-day period. So applying that to modern life, if we rise to walk in newness of life and the power of his resurrection, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, the idea of resurrection is that we not only experience a one-time moment, but he is seen in our life throughout the process of this resurrection experience, uh, the life of God living inside of us. So Luke 24 says at the end of that 40-day period, and we're talking about the 50 days of Eastertide, but the first 40 days when he was seen, 
Luke says, concluding his gospel, that he took them out to a mountain and he ascended into the heavens. And after he had parted from them, this is what Luke said, Luke said they worshiped him and they immediately returned to Jerusalem. So if you're looking for those 10 days at the end to account for them with what happened, this is what happened. They saw him ascend, they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And of course, they were Jewish people, Messianic Jews following Jesus, where they were continually in the temple. I mean, they took the experience of Jesus straight into the temple, and they were in the temple praising and blessing God. The Bible says for a period of 10 days, they ran out of the temple praising and blessing God. There was one particular occasion that that group of people who were particularly followers of Jesus and Jewish had a small group meeting, a Sunday school class apart from the temple. And the Bible said they gathered in an upper room where they were discussing the life of Jesus, a part of their Jewishness. And there in that upper room, they were praying and they were reflecting on the fact that Jesus had told them to go to Jerusalem that he was going to come back to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know how to wrap their minds around that. Um, the angels even caught them gazing into the heavens, you know, mesmerized by the ascending Lord. And the angel said, why are you standing here gazing? Go to Jerusalem as he told you. The same Jesus you see going away, he's going to come back in like manner. I, I don't think necessarily that was a, a reflection of the end time coming of Jesus. He was talking about the day of Pentecost. So they go, and for 10 days they wait. And then Acts 2 says, when the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost, when the day, the festival of Shavuot, one of the three main festivals on the Jewish calendar, uh, the Pesca the feast or the Passover feast, um, the feast of tabernacles or the feast of weeks, and the feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Tabernacle was the feast, uh, not the Feast of, uh, well, I'm getting confused. Feast of Passover, Feast of Tabernacle, and then the Feast of Pentecost, which was the Feast of Weeks. You know how we have Advent and we have Easter, we have these two seasons that our calendar kind of revolves around? They had three. These three feasts were so embedded in their worship and the psyche of their life uh, that Jewish males from all over the world, uh, from the Mediterranean Rim, North Africa, um, all the way to Western Europe, on the other side of Mesopotamia, down to the uh, perhaps tips of uh, even India, they would make their way back to Jerusalem on one of these three days, sometime all of the three days. And the Bible says that uh, Jerusalem was teeming with a population of people that was not normal for it except in those feast days. Maybe 10, 20 times as many people as were normally in Jerusalem were there. Some of the people had been there since the feast of, of uh, Passover, which was seven weeks before. They'd come from such a far distance that they just stayed. Now, some of the folk from Galilee and the surrounding regions, they would go home between. But there was a large host of people there on the day of Pentecost. And the Bible said after that 50-day period had passed, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, fully set in that Jewish calendar, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And they began to speak in languages that weren't their own. They began to speak in 
languages of men not necessarily known to them, spilling out of that upper room into the streets of Jerusalem, again, that were teeming with these Jewish folk from all over the diaspora or the dispersion who were there celebrating Pentecost. The Bible says that they were speaking the praises of God in languages other than theirs. Eighteen different nations represented in the streets of Jerusalem. Jewish people who were multilingual knew the language, their Jewish language, perhaps Aramaic, but they also knew the language in which they had been raised. Eighteen different types of Jews from different nations round about that world said, wait a minute, we hear them declaring the mighty, wonder, wonderful works of God in, in our language, not theirs. What is this? Some of them, not really hearing the clear articulation, just saw the ecstatic experience, and they said, these guys are drunk. And the Bible said it was at that moment. This is when the church begins. This is a big deal. This is the season we're going into. At that moment, everything Jesus had lived for, everything that he had pointed to, Peter stood up with the apostles. Everybody says that Peter's the guy that preached on the day of Pentecost. No, Peter preached with the apostles. This was a large crowd. They didn't have amplification systems. Peter preached, and the other apostles scattered through the crowds and repeated his message Peter stood with the apostles, and he said, these guys are not drunk as you suppose. Now, they are drunk, but they're not drunk on the vintage that you think they're drunk on. They're not drunk as you suppose, seeing it's just 9 o'clock in the morning. But this is that, again, rooted in, in the Jewish faith, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh without distinction, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, male and female, kings and handmaidens, old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions, women will prophesy just as men. The Bible says that Peter continued to preach from the writings of Joel. He continued to preach from others of the prophets. He even quoted a psalm, at which point the people were convicted and said, what do we do? He said, just turn to this one who's been crucified, whom many of you were party in crucifying. Repent, be baptized, calling on his name, and the same spirit that filled us will fill you for the promises unto you, your children, and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. You can tell I was raised Pentecost, wasn't it? Can't you? It's kind of one of our candy sticks. I know that one really good. So, <clears throat> so Pentecost comes. Now, obviously, I got I to stop there. Obviously, there's a lot of material for us to focus on in Easter tide on either end of the story. You got Passion Week on one end, you got Monday, Thursday, you got Holy, uh, you got Good Friday, you've got Silent Holy Saturday, you've got Resurrection Day. I mean, there's a lot of material to talk about on that end of Easter tide. On the other end of Easter tide, Pentecost, uh, there's a lot of material. I just couldn't help myself, gave some of it, but we could break that down and talk about what it means for all flesh to be able, to be possessors of the Spirit of God. Beautiful material. But this Eastertide, there are some incredibly significant lessons to learn in the 48 days between the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost, or those linchpin days. There's a lot of material for us to focus on incredibly instructional material for the church and some material that I think might be quintessential to where this church is, to where my heart is, the heart of this leadership, to where this church is going and what we're doing within the community of faith. 
some of those lessons we're going to focus on over the next six weeks. Particularly, we're going to look at the 40-day period immediately following the resurrection before Jesus ascended. And we're going to talk about how Jesus related to, treated, viewed, and interpreted this thing we call sacred scripture, holy text, the Bible. Now, I want you to remember something about the brilliance of the Bible before we get into this deeply. And that is, the Bible is not simply, all of this is important, so please just kind of mark this in your mind. The Bible is not simply an historical narrative to be read. The Bible is not simply a historical book that is to be read, memorized, and remembered and regurgitated in proper sacred settings. The Bible is actually not the story simply of humans who lived a long time ago. The Bible is the story of every human life. The Bible is the story of creation. It is the story of life and creation continually experiencing a cycle and a process of transformation. The Bible is not their story, it is our story. Accordingly, with that idea, which the church has always believed, sometimes we don't live like it, but that is essentially what we believe about the text, the Christian calendar that some of you didn't grow up with. Now, we all grew up with it to some extent with Christmas and Easter. Uh, From the Pentecostal world that I grew up with, that, that was it. We didn't know about a Christian calendar or a liturgical year. Some of you come from those backgrounds and you did, but Let me say this about the Christian calendar. The Christian calendar recognizes the true nature of Scripture. And the calendar is not given to us for us to go through this rote process of religious observance, holidays or holy days. The Christian calendar recognizes and reminds us not that Advent happened, but that Advent is happening. The Christian calendar reminds us that we are all continually experiencing, continually in and out of the transformative cycle of Advent, Christmastide, Epiphany. We are continually in and out of the season of Lent and Easter. Lent is not a 40-day period that we go through only at that time of year. Lent is a 40-day period when we remind ourselves that the actual Lenten process is something that we come in and out of quite frequently in our lives. We are continually living a process of Easter. Easter. We are experiencing nativity, not as a story, but as a reality. We are experiencing baptism. We remember that we don't just read that Jesus got baptized and we get baptized. We remember Jesus saying, will you be baptized with me? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And when Paul reflected back on that, Paul said, we are buried with Christ in baptism. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of our text, the beauty of our calendar, and the beauty of our experience is when we take our children down in these waters, they are going down in the waters with a timeless Christ buried with him in baptism. 
We are continually experiencing temptation, wilderness experiences, Palm Sunday. This is the brilliance of the book. We live in Monday, Thursdays, Good Fridays, Silent Saturdays, Resurrection Sundays, Pentecost, and frankly, a good bit of ordinary time. So, utilizing the Holy Scripture. Utilizing the Holy Scripture. Oh, I, I can't tell you how important I believe this statement is. Utilizing the Holy Scripture properly, emphasis on properly, means not simply reading and remembering a text, Bible sword drills. Utilizing Holy Scripture properly means entering the text, recognizing myself as a living text, playing out the themes that I'm able to read in the lives of others. We go down into the well with Joseph betrayed by his brothers. We come out experiencing the sovereignty of grace. We stand before our own brothers, hearts broken, bathed in a forgiveness divine that could not be acquired by ourselves. We don't stand reflecting back on something that happened 2,000 years ago at an open tomb, but we rise every day walking in newness of life and the power of that resurrection. We are not readers of the text alone. We are living witnesses to the text there is a reason that many of you, no put down, you're in good company, but you are estranged from the Bible. As Christians, you don't know what to do with the Bible. It's a hard text. It's a difficult text. It's a daunting text. You don't understand it. You feel like you try every year. You've gone through your daily bread and read it, and you still don't know what it's saying. I can tell you that I once had that relationship with Scripture such that... Viewing Scripture that way became so ineffectual for me that I eventually put it down completely. Many of you have not only had that experience with the text, you've had that experience with church and other things within the kingdom. But once I recognized the living nature of, of the text, and for all of you that have trouble reading the Bible, listen. Once I recognized this, driven probably more quickly to this realization than you because my vocation depended on it as well as my heart. And there were times that the vocation actually drove me more than the heart. To whatever end, God used that graciously. But once I recognized the true nature of Scripture and stopped, Antonio, when I stopped superficially reading the Bible and when I say superficially, I mean across the surface, strip mining the soil of the Bible. When I stopped superficially reading the Bible as a final constitution, a fundamentalist text who gave surface answers that made me right and my foes wrong and made our denomination the chief purveyors of truth. When I stopped superficially reading the Bible as a constitutional text or a fundamentalist text and I realized that it was actually an invitational text. When I realized that it was an invitational text that was never intended to end conversations. God will do that one day when the angel stands on soil and water and says time shall be no more and the kingdom will come 
Until that time, Scripture was never intended to end conversations with final answers. But instead, this is a holy, inspired book and a gift from God, and it is given to the world and the church to call us into the important conversations. And to not only call us into those conversations, but brilliantly facilitate and guide us as we navigate those very difficult dialogues. When I finally realized that that was the nature of Scripture, I I began to circle back around, pick it up again, and I began to experience the life-giving force that Scripture was really created to be. Now, that's not something I'm just talking about. That's always been really the perspective of the church. And we get that out of our Jewish roots. Our Jewish roots, remember we do have a Jewish Lord who came to a Jewish people and he preached himself from a Jewish text. So we are rooted. We are not a different tree. We're engrafted into that tree. That's our story. That's why You know, I understand the issue of Old and New Covenants, but I don't like the issue of Old Testaments and New Testaments because a lot of people uh, think that we're just going to spend our time over here with the 27 books and those 39 back there are anachronistic. No, 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 no. Per Jesus, Deuteronomy is as important as John and Genesis is as valuable to us as Matthew. Jesus preached himself from the sacred text that he called Holy Scripture long before Paul wrote the book of Romans. So our Jewish roots, our Jewish Lord, and our Jewish text, we are rooted in a text. I I don't know how long it's been since I've just preached about the Bible itself, but Easter time we're going to learn some stuff about the Bible. And I, I believe some of you are going to experience an outpouring of the Spirit in your life by Pentecost, and maybe even some of you will pick up this book that you have, that has fallen on hard times with you. That literally, though you would not admit it, you hold severe consternation for, even disdain. And it's a tragedy as a follower of Christ that that's happened, but it happens. We are many things as followers of our Jewish Lord. And one of those things, not the least of those things, and a very important thing, is that we are a people that believe God communicates. We are a people that believe that God discloses God's self. We believe that God communicates via many means. One of the central mediums through which we believe God has communicated himself is the prophetic office. Scripture is a prophetic book, and by prophetic, please don't shut your ears, because I'm not talking about the, the, the three-ring circus that some of you experienced in your past life, or I'm not talking about crystal balls. When we say the book is a prophetic book, God spoke to people, and the story of Israel was that when he spoke to them at Sinai, they could not sustain that voice, and they told Moses to ask him to no longer speak directly, but to speak via a channel, and the prophetic office was instituted. The prophetic office was simply the idea, and I don't want you to miss this, the idea that God can communicate Kenny Spittler to me through you. God can communicate to you through McKinley, your daughter. God can and does communicate to us through capital P prophets and small p prophets. And in my life, more lowercase prophets have spoken than uppercase prophets. 
Prophecy, don't be scared of it, is simply the idea that out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, out of human frames, God communicates himself. And I think everybody in this room could reflect back on your life. It may not be a preacher. It very well may be a grandmother or a daughter or a friend or maybe even one of your enemies that you have walked away and the net effect, the distilled effect, you look back, Chris, and you think, I think God was talking to me. That is not an Old Testament idea. Peter said on the day of Pentecost that God's going to pour out on our handmaidens a gift of prophecy. Not only would kings and prophets and in-house priests be able to prophesy, but even our handmaidens would prophesy, those that we did not approve of. And I just want to remind you that Jesus Christ chose to show himself first to two women And he was making a statement. There's a lot in the text beneath the surface of the text. He showed himself. You think he wasn't strategic? He showed himself to two women. They went immediately and told the apostles, and the apostles thought they were telling wives' tales. Later in that day, men experienced the risen Christ, and they believed them. He was saying something about our treatment of women. And on the day of Pentecost, he said more when he said women will be able to prophesy as well. We are a people that believe God communicates. Paul reinforced that in 1 Corinthians 14 when he said, of all the gifts, spiritual gifts that we could desire, he said, I suppose prophecy would be the best. I'm not talking about that Barnum and Bailey deal on television where guys get up and tell you to put your hand on the screen and say, thus saith the Lord. I'm talking about the simple belief that God Almighty Kelly can speak to you through your own children. That God Almighty can wiggle into your life. He can can even speak through people that you don't approve of. Balaam's story tells us he can even use a donkey as a medium if he wants to. Paul said there is a gift that we should all desire, and that is the gift that maybe, just maybe, in the broken frailties of life, as we cross paths with someone, God could use us, Jerry, to speak a word of encouragement that actually extends beyond our heart and minds itself all the way to the very heart of God. That's the gift of prophecy. And Paul said of the church, let all prophesy. Let the others judge, because we're just humans. And that's why anybody who comes up to me and tells me that the God, God told them to tell me, I, I look for a way to run. Because there's humility in the prophetic office. There's humility in the prophetic gift. There's humility such that that God probably uses our children more than anybody else because they haven't possessed the gift and they haven't called themselves to an office and they haven't given themselves a title. My mentor, Brother Hardwick, always said, it's not prophecy that I mind, it's the prophets I can't stand. (laughs) And when people stick their thumbs in their lapels and think that there's something, they destroy the gift. Don't miss in the grandiosity and the inflamed tones the fact that prophecy, Dave, is just a gift that you and I could be used at some point to speak to some human without even knowing that God could communicate his heart to us through us. And we believe that there are difficult issues in life. We believe that there are difficult issues, germane in particular, to every culture and time. 
I won't even dare to speak for our entire culture because what culture am I talking about? Protestant culture, Christian culture, Bible Belt culture, Pentecostal culture, the culture of the George and Mitchell family from which I come, Northeast Arkansas, Middle Tennessee. I don't know how to speak for all culture. I just know that within the culture of my life there are important issues. I grew up in a culture of Christian coalition and religious right and the conjoining of I remember when we were all Democrats and then we all became Republicans and the two central issues beyond fiscal conservancy and the issues of federal government and state government, no, the issues for us became in the 80s and 90s, um, sanctity of marriage, we called it, and the sanctity of life. And we wrestled with capital punishment and abortion, and yet we wrestle today. The LGBT issue that this church has valiantly given itself to a discussion of, leaving a wake of much pain, heartache, incivility, even some that could not handle just simply the dialogue. It's painful stuff. Do we dare believe that every culture has shared those same central issues? Do you think that the Christian church in West Africa in the 17th century was wrestling with those same things? Around this globe, we often fancifully say we talk about the abolition of slavery. There's more slavery in this world today than there was 150 years ago. You see, we're looking myopically, narcissistically through our lens. I can't speak for all cultures, but I want to tell you this. The Spirit of God can speak to all cultures. And we believe that there are difficult issues in life, and we believe that neither God nor the Bible pretends to immediately hastily, offhandedly, and glibly answer those difficult issues. We believe the tactic of God as we read it in Scripture is not often to settle issues once and forevermore. Though he does that, and some of those issues we still celebrate today, there's nothing, I'm not a rebel without a cause, there's nothing I like more than to take something off of the shelf of orthodoxy, dust it off and say, I still believe that, and put it right back. I don't like disagreeing with my parents or grandparents. I love getting along just fine. But we believe there are also difficult issues in life as Acts 15 records, the brother of Jesus, James, John the Beloved, who was the caretaker of Jesus' mother, Mary, Peter, who was the preacher on the day of Pentecost centrally, and Paul, the great theologian and apologist of Christianity. They came together in Acts 15 with an issue that is one we can't wrap our mind around. And that is whether or not people like us could be called the children of God. Acts 15 tells the story of a group of people in the early days of the church filled with the Spirit of God, struggling with the issues of how Gentiles could be included in that faith and what would be required of us. The keeping of Sabbath, circumcision, Jewish halakha or mitzvah. What would be required of us? These were men who had had the supernatural attention of God. They had seen visions. They had dreamed dreams. They had heard the audible voice of God. They had spoken the clarion call of the gospel. They had heard things with supernatural distinction. Yet on this day, when the church was in the process of being torn apart, 
the Protestant Catholic division pale in comparison to the issue facing that church that day. And as they turned their attention toward God, asking for a vision or red letters of fire across the sky, God looked at them, put them in a room, and stepped back and allowed them to go through a painful process of dialogue and conversation such that if I read the text right, there was even things tantamount to name-calling amongst that group of holy apostles. And from that room, they came with a message for the church, a message of compromise, a word that has fallen on hard times in these days of ours. But they came with a hard-fought compromise and said these things. The apostles' first apostle. You want apostolic doctrine? Here it is. Abstain from meat offered to idols, abstain from things strangled, and abstain from fornication. Do we still do that? Are we still abstaining from meat offered to idols? Are we still abstaining from things that have been strangled? Yet the first declarative message of the apostles outside of the gospel was that these are the necessary things that we must do, Jew and Gentile. And ultimately, the apostles reflecting back on that compromise with a measure of humility in their voice said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed. And I hear Mother Teresa say to my friend who asked her to pray for him that he might have certainty and clarity. She said, I will not pray for you to have clarity. Threw his hands down on the table and he wept and said, but you've seemed like such a person of such great clarity. Mother Teresa smiled, softened and whispered, it seems. But I have seldom had clarity. But in the absence of clarity, I've learned trust. And Mike, he put those guys in the room and told them there are other virtues besides clarity, certainty, and accuracy. He told them there are some virtues that matter a lot to God, like learning how to be long-suffering with those who disagree with you, learning how to meet in the middle, learning how to find civility and kindness and forbearance and long-suffering. And they walked to that room, not as visionaries of heavenly visions, but humbly wringing their hands, saying, this is weighty stuff. And it seems that we have done the right thing. We believe there are difficult issues in life. They had them then, and we have them now. And this church has yet, in its 10 years, to experience a struggle as hard as that one in Acts 15. We have yet, but thankfully there were a group of people that got in a room and talked about us long before we lived. These issues are to be wrestled with, and so as Scripture guides our wrestling conversations, as Scripture guides our reflections, our decisions on important matters, we are comforted in those Acts 15 wrestling matches with the fact that these people from whom we came, when they were given a name finally by God, God gave them the auspicious name Israel. Israel, which falls so beautifully on our ears, yet a name born of grappling and wrestling. God looked at him 
that progenitor of our faith named Jacob, the grandson of our father Abraham. And as he wrestled all night long with God and himself, God tapped him on the hip, dislocating it, caressed his face and called him blessed and said, I'm going to call you and your people those who wrestle with God. We are a people who are called invitationally by the text to wrestle with a text with God's heart and with the major issues of life. When a friend of mine cornered me not long ago on an issue of great import, a friend of mine looked at me and said, I need a yes or no answer. I immediately stopped him and said, people did that to Jesus all the time and he never gave it. Jesus was not being evasive and he was not being political. Jesus was simply saying, this is bigger. This is more complex. There's more blood and wound and life and soul in this. Come to me with a yes or no answer about marriage and divorce. Jesus said, I can't hear yeses and noes. I'm thinking about a population of people devastated and broken. And my friend says, I need a yes or no answer. Is it wrong or is it right? What's the Bible say? And as I paused, he said, that's the difference between you and me. I can give an answer, but you hesitate. The issue that he was talking about was the LGBT issue. I said, I'm not hesitating because I'm political. I'm hesitating because there are 350 million people in this world connected to moms and dads and brothers and sisters whose hearts are broken. There are teenage boys and girls committing suicide over this very thing. My God, don't press me into a quick, quick, glib answer. We are called Israel. Thank God somebody back when wrestled with issues of marriage and divorce. Thank God someone wrestled with issues of misogyny and patriarchy. Thank God people were unwilling to give yes or no answers, but to give themselves to a wrestling because we are Israel. These issues are to be wrestled with. And so Israel, the Jewish people, the children of Abraham, from which Christianity grew and will forever be conjoined and rooted in, the Jewish people gave us our love for, our belief in, and our view of how to handle a sacred text. It was their rabbinic system of teaching which Jesus followed I have much to say to you over the next six weeks, <clears throat> and I don't want to say it simply about our culture. If I can teach you these principles, if we can live these principles, if we can enjoy the text, the Holy Spirit will come in your life, and He will work with you within the culture and the perimeter of your experience. But the rabbinic system, Jesus was the first Jewish man that we actually know called rabbi, but the system that we call rabbinic was actually uh, something that preceded Jesus by hundreds of years. It was built into the fabric of the Jewish people. This rabbinic system of teaching which Jesus followed believed that God communicated to us through a Torah. That's our word for doctrine. Torah meant instruction or teaching. That's what doctrine means. The Jewish people believed that God had a heart and that heart was communicated out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, 
and we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God because it comes from the heart of God. And sometimes that gets, that gets communicated through people, through text, through prophets, and we capture that, and that is a written Torah. But Jesus believed, as did the rabbis before him, as did Israel, that God communicated through a written Torah and an oral Torah. And those two were connected siametically. They could not be separated. The oral Torah, listen to me, I'm going to tell you something really important, and I'm going to read a text, and we're going to come back to this next week. The oral Torah was the continuing effort of God's people to properly interpret and appropriately apply the written text. The oral Torah was the effort of God's people to wrestle with a text and not strip mine it, but dig deeply into it and appropriately apply that text to each generation and culture. I'll tell you what the Hebrews realized and Jesus lived. God has built into the prophetic text a time-released nature. And so for those who believe the process of oral Torah is revisioning and censoring and downplaying, they're missing the point. Oral Torah is not a revision. Oral Torah is the recognition of John 16 and 13. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. And if you read church history, you don't even have to read it carefully to recognize that our long 2,000-year history is a history of not us changing, censoring, and revising the text, but coming back to a text and reading it finally with the material that was invested in it in the beginning and finally saying, so that's what that meant. Scripture is a time-released capsule that graciously meets itself out to us in incarnate fashion because that's the nature of the incarnation. Jesus didn't just come, and he didn't just come to the right place in the right way. Paul said he came at the right So even the incarnation, the moves of God, the communicative moves of God are time-released in nature. You say... But Scripture is so clear in its service. Yes, it's so clear. We have 20,000 denominations who say it is clear if you'll just listen to them. (laughs) Scripture is so clear. Let me give you a clear one. This is not Deuteronomy. This is 1 Peter 2. Slaves, rise up and revolt. Allies, join them. Not in our 27 books written in the first century. First Peter 2. Slaves, be submissive to your masters even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called. Now, every one of you right now are saying, we know what that means. Yes, we do but we didn't for the first 14 to 18 centuries of the Christian church. 
For Christ left us an example when reviled, reviled not again, but entrusted himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. All we were like sheep going astray, but through that one led to the slaughter who became shepherd, we have been called back to him by the shepherd of our souls. We have to admit per church history, I want you to know that Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Wesley, nobody interpreted 1 Peter 2 the way we interpret it today because it looked like a clear endorsement of a slave system as long as slaves were Christian and as long as slave owners, Paul said, were called to decency with their slaves. Hear it again. Slaves, be submissive to your masters even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called. Christ left us an example. Strip mine that text and you will endorse slavery. And we did for 18 centuries. Until at the right time. Did you know that's the text that Martin Luther King Jr. said most inspired him? How could King be inspired by the most difficult text in the Bible on the matter, in the New Testament, on the matter of slavery? Because the Holy Spirit took him down, down, down into the text, following Wilberforce and the others. And King said, I heard it again, slaves be submissive, submissive even if they beat without cause. For to this we were called, Christ left us an example who reviled, reviled not again, but through his very wounding has called us back through his suffering. And King said, that text is not endorsing slavery any more than it's endorsing the crucifixion of God. It's saying in a world where that kind of abominable evil happens, God is so redemptive that he can even take something like a crucifixion and redeem the universe through it. And God can take the suffering of a slave and bring to consciousness that person who puts the stripes on his back until finally, by the goodness of God, they return and they repent and they are convicted. It was that scripture that endorsed slavery on the surface that King finally drew inspiration enough to call his friends and family and say, yes, bring your children today. He said, I never had a struggle like that day when I told them to bring their children because I knew there were going to be water cannons and I knew there were going to be German shepherds and I knew I was asking them to put their children in harm's way. But I knew, he said, that there were going to be national cameras from CBS there. And I knew if this country could see it instead of read it, I knew that their hearts would be touched by the heart of God. And it was on that day, brothers and sisters, that the whole civil rights movement turned as little girls went flip-flopping down a road at the end of water cannons, as little boys had German shepherds hanging on their arms simply because they wanted to drink from the same water fountain as their white neighbor. It was that day that we sat mesmerized in front of our televisions and we were redeemed by the very suffering that we were causing. King said, I will bear your blows and metabolize them by the Holy Spirit of God's grace and return them to you with conviction and repentance and we will bear in our bodies brothers and sisters 
if a text that we defended slavery on for 18 centuries can be the driving impetus of a black man named King to redeem the perpetrators of their hate by his love. Luke 24 said, and I'll leave it here and we'll pick up here next week. Listen to me. Give me 120 seconds. He got up out of the tomb, showed himself to the women. The women went and told the men. The Bible says they were the first ones sent, apostolon, apostles. They were the small a apostles. And they went and told the capital A apostles, and the capital A apostles said, wives' tales, rumors, wink, wink, you know how women are. And Jesus was making a statement deeply embedded, Tiffany, in the text. Later, those same guys who poo-pooed the women, they began to hear stories from the men, and they believed. Big statement. Immediately following that, Scripture says he enjoined two men on the road to Emmaus who were disciples of his. And the Scripture says, this is where we'll pick up next week, that as he spoke to them, they didn't know it was Jesus, and they didn't know Jesus was resurrected until finally he looked at them and said, Oh, slow of heart, have you not heard and believed what the prophet said? And beginning there, he opened to them Moses and the prophets. And listen to this. He interpreted the scripture for them. He later upbraided them and said, did you not read in the Torah, the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures? Did you not read that clearly the Messiah must suffer and be raised the third day? They're like, where did it clearly say he's going to raise the third day? He's like, duh, the book of Jonah. And they're like, big fish swallows a guy, burps him up on the seashore, forgiveness, talking to the Assyrians, and we're supposed to get resurrection three days of the Messiah. You got to interpret the text, and the text doesn't unfold from the surface. It unfolds deep down inside. Scripture says he interpreted the scriptures for them, Jerry, and clearly showed them what they had not seen in a book that they handled for many years, centuries. The Bible says that they are later reflected and said, didn't our hearts burn inside of us when he opened the scriptures to us? And finally, the Bible says, then he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures that he opened. And I want to say this about the Bible. It's our text, and I would love to call some of you back to it. But Jesus taught us that he is our rabbi, and he is our interpreter of scripture. And we've got to read the text with Jesus, not with the Baptists or the Catholics. We've got to read the text with Jesus. We've got to read the text not with Stan. We've got to read the text with Jesus. And I want to tell you that scripture unopened by Jesus is closed. And closed scripture can be more, more harmful than no scripture. Closed scripture has caused greater damage than no scripture. 
Bad religion hurts more than no religion. Closed scripture can be more harmful than no scripture. And I want to say this, scripture opened by Jesus to unopened minds is still useless. He not only opened their minds, Mike, or opened the scripture, he opened their minds. Opened scripture and unopened minds is useless. Only scripture opened by Jesus to minds opened by Jesus is truly useful. And I'll say it this way. This midrash wrestling that humans do, we generally do it born of necessity and pain. Jesus opens the scriptures to hearts that have been opened by life. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus opened. Jesus does open our hearts, but he generally does that through life. That's the way I've seen it. In 30 years of pastoring, most of us get our minds opened by life, not by an epiphany. But an open text that Jesus can interpret only finds use in an open heart. And I have seldom met minds that were opened unless it was life and time that did it. I can't do that for you, but life will. And as life does, don't let anybody call you revisionist, censoring, and downplaying if life pain lead you back to the feet of Jesus saying, would you help me read this again? And when we're able, the midrash of community, the struggle and the wrestle, the voice of the Lord will come through and the church will continue reforming itself. Some call it backsliding. I call it moving toward the image that is full in Christ that truly represents God's heart. That's the process of the church. Over the process of Eastertide, we're going to look at several examples, not of how we should do that, but of how we've already done that. It is the model, and that, brothers and sisters, is a high view of Scripture. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good day. Thank you for these good folks who sit here and give themselves to this process week after week not just surface, not just shallow, but dig down into the hard stuff. Thank you for them. Bless them in this Easter tide, and I pray, dear Lord, above all, that you would interpret the text, open the Scripture, and open our minds that we might fully know you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. God bless you. Go in God's grace.